Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and because we had so much fun talking on the previous episode and there was so much more I wanted to get to, I'd like to welcome back Jeff Fellenzer, an associate professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, a former editor and writer at the LA Times, the founder of the Pete Newell Challenge Basketball Tournament, and a longtime voter for the Heisman Trophy Award a renaissance man for all sports seasons. <laughs> Jeff, thanks for coming back for another episode of the Everything USC podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Nara. It's always fun to talk sports with you. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn, or go to the website Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V. Dot com on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, I'm on Twitter. Find and follow me there. Send me all your questions and comments about USC or any other sports at Nara Wang Sports, N A R A W E N G Sports. Jeff, let the people know how they can find you. Yeah, at Twitter, it's at Jay Fellinser. And the name of my podcast is The Front Row. I call it that because I always like it when my students sit in the front row sit as close to the front row as possible. I think they get more out of the learning experience. So the podcast is about the interesting, compelling journeys that you find and that I find in sports with you know some of the notable people that I've had the good fortune to get to know and how they got to where they are. So we have a lot of fun with that. We'll have more content that'll be loaded in there this fall. So always appreciate stopping by, you know, leaving a comment. Let me know what you thought. Hit me up on LinkedIn. I love to connect with new friends that way, students, former students. So that's always a good way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. The football season is in full swing, and while you might not be at the games this year, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Can Clemson knock off Notre Dame with star quarterback Trevor Lawrence not playing due to a positive COVID 19 test? And now that Lawrence has longer odds to win the Heisman Trophy, should you lay some money down on him if you think he'll finish the season strong? Those are a couple of the big questions bettors are asking themselves this week. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. So Jeff, in our previous show, we basically talked about the effects of the coronavirus on the football and sports season in the fall for USC and the Pac-12 and how it's affected you as a professor, teaching classes virtually and all of that. So now I kind of want to get away from the coronavirus a little bit in this episode and talk more about some of the other stuff you're involved in. And I want to begin by talking about the fact that you are, as I mentioned, a Heisman Trophy Award voter. You've done it for a while now. And this is going to be an interesting year for the Heisman Trophy Award because with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten not playing during the fall, but As far as we know, and you can tell me more about this as we talk, the Heisman Trophy Award is still going to be handed out in December. So talk to me about what you've heard from the Heisman Trophy Award Trust about what's going to happen with the fact that there are so many schools not playing football this fall, but how they are proceeding with that award. Well, you know, it's it's a really good question, Nora, and, and I haven't actually heard anything yet. I think that the Heisman Trust folks in New York are just kind of waiting to get a feel for how the season is going to unfold. The question is, do you have a legitimate season? What is a legitimate season? How many conferences have to play? What if it ended up being, 
you know, two conferences. Would you have a Heisman Trophy winner? It would be unlike any other winner in that you wouldn't be representative of an entire country of college football players, but rather only a conference or two. So I think the Heisman folks are just waiting to see finally what will happen when the season does in fact start over these next couple of weekends. And then I'll kind of take my marching orders. It's a pretty organized system, the voting system of having regional Heisman organizations. Like we have a person that coordinates the West Coast voters and then other parts of the country have their, you know, regional coordinators. So I usually check in beginning of the season and then towards the end with the coordinator from the West Coast, who I have not talked to because I think everybody's just waiting to see how this thing is going to take shape. But if we move forward and there's three or maybe even more, depending on what happens with the Big Ten and then by extension, the Pac-12, when we see what happens, then we'll know just how complete of a picture that college football will have this year. But we don't know that yet. So when I do, then away we go. And it's truly an honor to be part of the process. I've been doing it since 2007. And it changes the way you watch college football. It's actually kind of a fun thing I share with my classes. I kind of give them my, my weekly Heisman update. And I take it seriously. You know, when, when those Saturdays come where I want to go to a game, I try to figure out how I can do that and not miss out, whether it's watching some of the games on a mobile device or recording games, watching them later, or just making sure I get to at least see some video of teams or players that I'm looking at. But I think there's a responsibility, and I've always taken it seriously. I never send my ballot in till either the day it's due or maybe the day before. I never understand why when I open the voting and say that you can now send it in, it's typically two to three weeks before the ballots are due. I never understand anybody sending it in any earlier than you absolutely have to. I want to see as many games as possible because things can change, and they have for me at different times over the years. So again, I'm truly honored to be part of it and to say that I'm part of the Heisman family is something I don't take lightly. It's been a great joy. I definitely know you do take it seriously because we've had some discussions in the past in certain years about who you like as a Heisman Trophy candidate. And I've definitely had times where I agreed and disagreed with you, but you're always willing to listen and to discuss. And that's why I know you do take it very seriously. But no matter what, there's going to be an asterisk based on the Heisman and any other awards that are given out this year just because of the way that this season's going to play out. I mean, most of the conferences are playing basically conference-only schedules. So it changes the way that you are going to evaluate players because they're not going to play against teams from outside their conference until a bowl season or playoff season. And even that's all still up in the air, how that's going to work too. So I don't know if I would say you automatically have an asterisk. I feel the same way about baseball. Like it's a 60 game season, but it's a season. I mean, we had a 50 game NBA season, 1998. I think you deal with what goes into that particular season. And as long as you can play what people would say is least is a representative number of games, I guess maybe you could debate it in baseball because it's not quite half of a regular season, but it's still 60. You know, it's not 10. So you're going to have MVPs and Cy Youngs, and they're going to do that. I think of a season, if you're in the six, seven game season, if you have playoffs for college football, like now I think you're getting closer to being representative. And look, if you put yourself on the line like the players that will be playing through this pandemic are going to do, I think you deserve not to have an asterisk. The asterisk will come just in the conversation and what we remember about the season. But for the players, you know, you're putting it out there. I'd say more power to you if this decision is made and we're praying that no long-term negative ramifications, but I think they deserve to have an asterisk preseason. And in your time as a Heisman Trophy voter, what was the toughest decision? Which year, who was it that you had to make when it came to trying to pick the person you thought was the best player in college football? You know, I think probably the year that Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin III went down to the wire, I had luck on top of my, you know, and as I said, I do kind of a weekly ranking. It's almost like the weekly poll rankings. And I think I had Andrew Luck through that 12-game regular season, I think I might have had him number one 
the following week after the weekend's games, maybe 11 of the 12 weeks. And finally, the last week of the season, I opted for Griffin and I gave him a little bit more of an edge because of having lifted up a program that at that point had been kind of more part of the downtrodden. And, you know, it was kind of like his sort of power as a transformational player in the history of the Baylor program. I just gave him a little bit more of an edge. They were both fabulous players. I remember that year, if you remember when Matt Barkley was in the discussion, the night that Stanford came down and ended up playing a, I think it was, was it a double overtime game against USC where it was Barkley and Luck and it was a phenomenal evening of football. I had another event to go to. I was going to go to the Coliseum, even if I would get there for the last five minutes. I, I was determined. I ran into terrible traffic coming from the Valley. And lo and behold, the game goes into overtime and then double. And maybe it was triple, as I recall, that Stanford-USD game. But I felt, wow, there's a higher power here that appreciates the effort I've made to get down to the college. They didn't even have <laughs> ticket takers at that point. So I got in and I had a ticket. And that was a season where it was really close, really, really close. And I gave the edge to RG3 at the end. The other year that, and it happens to also involve a Stanford player, that I felt there was no justification, in my mind, for a Stanford player, in this case, uh, just a few years ago, not getting the award, was the year that Christian McCaffrey didn't win it when he finished second to Derrick Henry. A terrific player and a terrific pro, Derrick Henry, but I just felt that Christian McCaffrey should not only have won it, but he should have won it in a landslide. Like, he should have gone from second place to a runaway winner. That's how extraordinary I felt that his season was. And if he had been playing at a school with a higher profile, but had had the exact same season, I think he would have had the runaway. Totally agree with you. I was a straight robbery, and all you had to do was watch McCaffrey against USC. I mean, he destroyed the Trojans when he played us. And I mean, he was clearly the best player, but... You know, Derrick Henry plays for Alabama. Right. And that's what got him the win. Well, I always bring up the fact that the accomplishment that probably jumps out to most people was that was the year that he broke Barry Sanders' record for kick returns. Kick, punt, shattered it. And you'd say, yeah, we remember when Barry Sanders was running wild and doing those things and tremendous accomplishment. Well, he was also Stanford's leading receiver. And so what I usually do is say, and now will you take a guess, if you don't remember for sure, but just take your best guess on on how many yards he gained that year. And typically the answer, they think about the return record, the receiving, you know, they'll say like, you know, I think he gained a thousand, you know, or maybe even 1500. I said, yeah, close. He was over 2000 yards rushing. I mean, Marcus Allen's season was a season for the ages that I remember vividly, and he was about 2,300 yards. And he was, you know, asked to carry the ball a lot, 30, 40 times a game. McCaffrey was doing all these other things, being the leading receiver, breaking a kick return record that had stood for almost 30 years. Oh, and by the way, he had a 2,000-yard rushing season. That's not good enough to be the best player in the country that year. The lack of respect for the West Coast and Stanford. I mean, Stanford's had so many runner-ups right. in recent memory, right? With Luck and McCaffrey yeah. and Gerhardt. Toby Gerhardt was a runner-up yeah. for the Heisman Trophy. So right. just no respect, basically. And Chris McCaffrey was clearly the best player in college football. I'm sorry, he was. I, yeah. And I had to witness it in person, you know? Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was ugly. Oh, I know. But... Yeah, he was definitely robbed of the trophy there. Yeah. Now, let's speak about USC and the fact that Reggie Bush had a 10-year forced disassociation with USC. Now over, the NCAA has lifted the disassociation. What do you think about the talk that he should get his Heisman Trophy back? Oh, boy. First of all, I was so glad to hear that that punishment, the idea of disassociating from the university, that had finally come to an end. That was a punishment that never fit the crime. It just didn't. When you get into, you know, how that would have affected his eligibility, would he have been able to have played all of the games that he played in 
to win a Heisman Trophy, and I thought clearly he was the best player in the country. I wasn't voting then, but it was really sad to me that he was actually asked to give the trophy back. And I would like to see something happen where the trophy would be returned to him as long as they felt like there was an understanding that was it fair punishment. I think everybody would say now it wasn't. I mean, at least most people that I have talked to that not even necessarily associated with USC, but feeling like it was so heavy handed. And I guess the only question is, what's the criteria for eligibility? And would he have still been in violation? You could certainly argue that the punishment that the university faced or the football program was excessive. Was the punishment of the individual as far as eligibility? Let's go back and look at what the details were on that. Because if there's a way to interpret that there was heavy handedness in making that decision, then by all means, the trophy should be returned to him. If they say no because of this violation, he actually wouldn't have been eligible to play, and that was a clear-cut decision and violation, then I don't know how you can do it because they would be saying no, he wouldn't have been able to go on the field based on what happened. So I would certainly say let's revisit that and figure out the NCAA has certainly proven to be a lot more reasonable and open to discussion and debate and a lot more lenient than ever before because I think they've realized their sins of the past and you know heavy-handed operation and they went way too far went way overboard so I would certainly hope that they might be open-minded about sitting down and discussing whether this was possible, whether you could take another and a closer look at that decision. What do you think? I'm going to take the cynical view of this. I don't think they're going to give him back the Heisman Award. I think they're going to use the fact that, well, he was ineligible for those games, so technically he shouldn't have been playing that season, and they're just going to use that as the crutch to say, well, because of that, we can't return any Heisman Trophy Award because he was technically ineligible to play. Yeah, I think you're right. I wonder if the NCAA, just because of seeing signs of reasonableness more in the last few years than ever before, whether they could be open-minded about that. But again, it comes down to if they believe that these violations would have affected eligibility, then it probably wouldn't get beyond that. Yeah, and that's where I think it is. And here's the thing, though. Reggie Bush did what he did on the football field. We all saw it. We all witnessed it. I was there when they destroyed Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl to win a BCS championship that doesn't exist in the record books, right? Right. But I was there. I saw it happen. I saw us manhandle a team led by Adrian Peterson and Jason White, another Heisman Award winner. It was a beatdown of epic proportions. Right. And according to the record books, that game was vacated. Didn't happen for USC purposes. So we all saw it, though. We all saw what happened. We all saw how great a player Reggie Bush is. And for me, hopefully going forward, I just want to see him be welcomed back to the university, be allowed to be a part of the program once again, because so many of today's players, even though they were so young, they still look up to that guy. Oh, there's no question. You hear that all the time. You know, I grew up watching Reggie Bush. And in fact, I can't believe we're getting to the, almost getting towards the end of where you're going to hear that, because they're going to be kids now that will have been a little young. But they'll watch the YouTube videos, and so they'll see the, you know, the exploits, and there were performances there that were otherworldly, and he certainly was the best player in college football that year. I don't think there's any question about that, and it's, it's too bad that the circumstances happened as they did, and to somehow tarnish the accomplishment, because it was special for those of us that were around. You know, it's funny, you know, Reggie Bush came to my class as a student one year. It was the spring. So I actually, at that point, I was only teaching the class in the spring. It only became year-round in 2011. So it was after his sophomore season. And I look up, I had just told a student that had come up and asked if he could add the class. This was like prior to the third week. And back then, I was really tough on adding people late. Like if you missed the first week, okay. If you missed the second week, then it was like a non-starter, like, no, I would just say, take the class next year. And that semester, I had an exam scheduled for that day. 
And so week three, we're having our first exam. And I just explained that to a student. And, you know, he was nice. He was disappointed. He turned and left. I look up and here's Reggie Bush. He introduces himself. And I said, I know who you are. You know, and he asked if he could join the class. And I just said, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, boy, you're really getting tested now. You just said no. <laughs> you just said no. And the student who you just said no to, I'm looking at, and he's still walking out. He's leaving the class. He didn't turn around and notice, wait to see what I was going to do with this recognizable figure. He just turned and, and walked out, and he barely left. And now I'm being tested. Like, are you going to make an, you didn't make an exception? Are you now going to? You know, and I thought, well, there go your tickets maybe for a Super Bowl someday. Or, you know, I know I laughed and I just, I said to him, look, I can't do it because I feel strong about not, you know, you missing at this point, it'd be seven hours of class already. And we have an exam tonight. And I just said no to somebody else. So I, I don't feel like I can do it and do it in good conscience. And he said, are you sure? And I said, I said, yeah, it just, I just can't say no to someone and then turn around and say yes. And he understood and he was very nice about it. And he said, okay. I said to him, in my mind, I laughed. I said, but I do this every spring. So please take it next spring. Knowing full well that well, the next spring would be the spring he'd be preparing for the NFL draft. And he very, very likely would not be in school. And he wasn't. And of course, I wasn't a Heisman voter then. So we could, you know, kind of laugh about that. But I'm a little more lenient now with students adding class late than I used to be. That's just a change I've kind of made, but I joke with people and tell them, I think that year, I think I was the only guy that could stop Reggie Bush. Hey, listen, at least you had the integrity to follow through with your convictions. I think a lot of other people might not have done that. And that's where you come in with the people who say, oh, well, these student athletes, they get treated differently. They get extra benefits, right? You didn't give them an extra benefit. So... Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I thought. I just want to be consistent. Like a big thing of mine, Nara, in life is consistency. I just love people that are always who you think they are, you know, and people that do things the right way. You know, I try to, and I just try, I try to be consistent, you know, and I want to be fair to everyone. And I would have felt bad about having that student leave the room and who knows what his schedule, hopefully he found another class and everything was fine. But that's one of the reasons I'm a little more flexible now is, you know, hey, especially if it's a student maybe in their last semester and their schedules are tight and everything. And if I can work with them and help them, I will do that. But yeah, it's just, it happens that way. And maybe it's good sometimes when athletes that are always used to hearing yes, that sometimes they hear no, it's kind of the way life is. That wasn't why I did that, but looking for something that comes out of that, it's positive. It's funny, I ran into Reggie Bush Three years ago, the Dodgers-Astros World Series, game one, I got a chance to have an extraordinary experience to sit with Scott Boris in his seats right there in row one for game one. And lo and behold, on the way out, I had a chat, bumped into Reggie Bush and mentioned that. He laughed about it. I don't think he remembered, but we laughed. And my hope is that maybe he'll forgive me and come to class sometime and we'll get a chance to talk about his journey, which has certainly been uh, an extraordinary one, even this far in his still young life. Yep, he is a member of the media now, working for Fox Sports. So that's true. He could definitely provide a varied perspective for your students. And again, you are listening to the Everything USC podcast. I'm your host, Nara Wang. And my guest today is an associate professor of professional practice in the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Jeff Fellenzer. If you enjoy listening to the show, you can download, subscribe, rate the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn, or go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, I'm on Twitter. Find and follow me there at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Jeff, let the people know what's going on with you. Sure. Jay Fellinser for Twitter and hit me up on LinkedIn. Connect with a lot of people there. And my podcast is called The Front Row and iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Love to hear from anybody in your audience and look forward to having some more content coming up. We take a closer look at the interesting, compelling journeys that I've found with extraordinary people that I've met in sports and always looking for the humanity in sports at the same time. This is Dane Blanton, head coach of the USC women's beach volleyball team and Olympic gold medalist. 
and you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. And in other news we need to talk about, we just had the passing of one of the all-time great athletes in USC Trojan history, the Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver. Of course, he is in the discussion for one of the greatest players of all time, not just pitcher, but player of all time in baseball history. And of course, this follows shortly on the heels of the death of Mike Gillespie, the longtime USC baseball coach who also played under the great Rod Dato. I know, Jeff, that you are very tied in with the USC baseball program, and Tom Seaver is a guy that you watched growing up, and I want to get your thoughts on the great Tom Seaver. Yeah, it was sad, and we were aware that the last 10 or so years, Tom Seaver has dealt with dementia and also Lyme disease, and COVID was also, you know, one of the challenges that he was facing over these last few months. And so, you know, he had gone on to have a very successful life after baseball as a winemaker. He had a winery in Calistoga. He was making a great, my favorite red wine, which is Cabernet. And he'd gotten great ratings from the wine industry. And I mean, that was in addition to having a career I mean, he was about a 98%, I think, of the votes as a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, he was in that stratosphere that you rarely get to, which is that virtually nobody said that he didn't belong right now. We were discussing this a little bit with Doug Glanville, our major league player. And, you know, this is a legit question. Is this the greatest baseball player in USC history, you know, for the richest history in the sport, the most championships far and away? And Tom Seaver's impact was only one season at USC, but it was. He was a guy that was not recruited out of high school. He was small, went to Fresno City College, and he's from Fresno. But he really hit his stride playing in Alaska. He did that for a couple of summers, and he got bigger and stronger, and he had such a good summer that USC recruited him to come in, and he blew up in that season, and then the pros were all over him. And at that time, you had more outs more ways to get into the draft than you do today. You know, they had drafts a couple of times a year. They had a January draft as well. And so uh, there was a bidding war for Tom Seaver and he ended up signing with the Mets. And gosh, I mean, to be a 300 game winner. I mean, can you imagine today, Nara, with the way the game is played and you have starters that are asked to go, you know, barely five innings anymore. I mean, he's a guy that won 311 games and, you know, an ERA under three, 2.86. So it's an interesting question to say. Is he the greatest baseball player in USC history, or would it be Randy Johnson? And it's kind of interesting because Seaver's career, he was rookie of the year in 67, and he finished up with the Red Sox on that 86 team, ironically playing in that epic series against the Mets. The Mets won. So he had 67 to 86. Randy Johnson turns pro in 85. He gets to the big leagues by 88. So almost, almost touched Seaver. But you had Seaver for 20 years, 67 to 86. Randy Johnson goes 22 seasons. So you had Seaver 20, Johnson 22. So you basically had one of those two epic USC pitchers from like 67 to almost all the way up to 2010. That's, you know, four decades. Johnson won 303 games. So Seaver 311, Johnson 303. Johnson has the second most number of strikeouts in the history of the sport. Seaver was sixth. Johnson might be the most electric left-hander, maybe other than Sandy Koufax, but, you know, he had a longer run. Koufax was 12 years. Johnson, as I said, was 22. So just think of the impact those two guys have on who you'd cite as being the greatest Trojan of them all. But to give you some perspective, Clayton Kershaw, who I think we all agree is, since he's come into the league, you know, 12 or so years, has been a good a player, good a pitcher as there has been in those 12 years. He's won 173 games going into his start tonight. So he would need another six 20-win seasons to get right there in that area where Seaver and Johnson were, 300 wins. He'd need six more 20-win seasons. That's how extraordinary those careers were of both Seaver and Johnson. And again, going back to Seaver, Tom, terrific. You know, he blew up at a time when I mean, he was he was larger in life in New York, like Joe Namath was. You know, the Jets win the Super Bowl, and then that fall is the Miracle Mets. How about that? That 69 season. And the first game of the World Series against that really, really talented 
Baltimore Orioles team that was actually led by well, Frank Robinson, but one of their stalwarts, one of their standouts was Don Buford, former USC baseball star, first black player to play baseball at USC, and the leading rusher on a USC football team in the late 50s. Don Buford leading off for the Orioles in the bottom of the first inning in game one of the World Series against Tom Seaver in Baltimore with Rod Dato watching. Buford hits a home run off Seaver. So Seaver pitches to Buford. Buford hits a home run. Rod Dato's in the stands. The Orioles win the game, and the Mets sweep the next four and win the World Series. But what a cool moment that must have been for Coach Dato and for USC baseball to look out and see pitcher, hitter, the home run, and then to know that Tom Seaver was going to get a world championship that year. Pretty special. Yeah, and that's a tough discussion between Seaver and Randy Johnson for the greatest Trojan of all time. I think it's really a coin flip, but I want to mention a couple other stats that are just amazing when it comes to Tom Seaver. I mean, you mentioned the number of wins Clayton Kershaw has, 173. Tom Seaver had 231 complete games. 231. Most of the greats today who may end up in the Hall of Fame are not going to get 231 wins. Right. He had 231 complete games. Yeah. And he is one of just two pitchers in Major League Baseball history to have 3,000 plus strikeouts, 300 plus wins, and an ERA under three. The other guy, Walter Johnson. Incredible. That's it. Two names in the history of Major League Baseball to have those three things on their resume. He won the Cy Young three times. He went to the All-Star Game 12 times. He was a Rookie of the Year in the NL. He won that World Series. And by the way, the exact number on that first ballot, 98.84%, which was the highest number for so long until Ken Griffey Jr. finally eclipsed him. And of course, Mariano Rivera became the first unanimous vote of all time to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, think about it. I mean, they each won a world championship. Johnson had the one in 2001. Seaver had the one in 69. Seaver, as you said, was a 12-time All-Star. Johnson was a 10-time All-Star. Johnson had four Cy Youngs in a row. Think about that. He also had a perfect game, and Seaver had a no-hitter as well. So, like, you are talking about, this is like Mount Rushmore. I like, it's about as good a career in the kind of more modern era when the game was different than it was in the early part of the 1900s. By the way, quick fun fact. Can you give me a high school on Walter Johnson? High school on Walter Johnson. Not off the top of my head. I'm sure I've heard it before, but I can't think of it. I mean, doesn't it strike you that he would have been this big, you know, farm boy from Ohio or maybe West Virginia, you know, like Pennsylvania? Because baseball was so East Coast oriented back then. Right. I probably was conditioned to think that all great players, you know, came from at that time, more like east of the Mississippi. How about this, Nara? Fullerton High School. Fullerton. Wow. He's from the he's from the OC. <laughs> <laughs> I always throw it out because I when I first heard it, I I like what? Wow. Yeah. I mean if you thought there were a lot of orange groves, I remember seeing the orange groves when they built Angel Stadium, then Anaheim Stadium. In 66 is when it opened. Orange County was just teeming with orange. Can you imagine what it would have looked like when he was playing at Fullerton High School? Walter Johnson. Yeah, way back when. (laughs) Indeed. So obviously you got to see more of Tom Seaver than I did. By the time I got into baseball, it was basically 1984, 85. So he was kind of at the tail end of his career. Yes. And in that 86 team, he was on the Red Sox team, but he wasn't on the World Series roster. So he didn't get to pitch against his former team. Well, I mean, that would have been incredible because he was hurt yep. most of that year. But talk to me about how truly dominant he was, because I think a lot of people, and again, I'm not the youngest person, but a lot of people yep. my age and younger don't really know how great Tom Seaver really was. Okay. Well, you mentioned the strikeouts. He was, I think it was number six all time. So right away, you know, and he got low on his follow through. Like his power was in his legs. Like they say the same thing about Nolan Ryan, that his power came from his leg. I mean, these guys weren't 6'4", 240. I mean, Seaver was, you know, 6'1", 200-ish, something like that. But he had really strong lower torso and power. And you had the combination of, the great power in his delivery, and you had great control. You had pinpoint control. So it was almost unfair, like the physical tools he had. 
He had enough of a breaking pitch, the velocity on his fastball, the control, the command. Like when he was in his rhythm, which happened early in his career, like I said, he blew up at USC. I mean, he was in the major leagues. I think he had, yeah, he had one year in the minors. He had one year in the minors, 66. And then 67, he was a rookie of the year. So at that time, of course, you had, you know, Bob Gibson and Juan Marshall and Don Drysdale. Koufax had just retired after the 66 season. Gaylord Perry, you know, hit a stretch. But you had these really dominant Hall of Fame worthy pitchers. And you could certainly argue that once Koufax retired, which happened again before Seaver began his career, there was none better. I mean, Gibson is usually at the top of just about anybody's list and his ERA and the year after Seaver won the rookie of the year, Gibson's ERA was 1.12, which is insane. I mean, they changed the rules after that year because it just felt like it was favoring the pitcher too much. So they lowered the mound. But Gibson, Seaver, Seaver, Gibson, Marshall, however you want to say it, they were a breed apart, really. So his career was extraordinary. And he was just, you know, it was a guy that when he pitched, if you were the opposing team, I think you felt fortunate if you could scratch out three runs, something like that. The other thing, by the way, Nara, is do you throw Mark McGuire into the discussion when you talk about greatest USC players of all time, if you want to talk about somebody, a, a non-pitcher? And obviously, you know, the, certainly the steroid question will always accompany that argument. But again, that's somebody else that you could hold up and say, you know, was he the greatest? He's definitely in the conversation, especially because he did probably have the best career of those three guys at USC. Right. Mark McGuire's college career. So Right, right. And that's a good point. I mean, you get into the same arguments when you ask, you know, the greatest basketball player in a school's history. And if it was a player who played in the last, say, 10 years, well, he was probably a one and done. And you'd say, is one year enough to be considered the greatest ever at a school? You almost kind of have to adjust that thinking when you talk about greatest ever to the modern era, when for basketball, at least, it's very likely going to be one and done. Like if you're having the discussion at USC, where would DeMar DeRozan rank if you were also considering someone like Paul Westphal? Right. Freshmen weren't eligible when he played, so he had a three-year career, as everybody did back then, a three-year career versus a one-year career. How do you look at that? I think it becomes what criteria are you using? Are you talking about the entire career and they just happen to play at a certain place? Or are you talking about the actual career they had at that school? Because I think you're right. When they retired DeMar DeRozan's number this year, for me, that's an award based on what he's done as a pro, not what he did at USC. I mean, he wasn't bad at USC. He was decent, but he spent one year and he was good. He wasn't great. I would say that OJ Mayo's one year at USC was better than DeMar DeRozan's one year at USC. So I think it becomes a, what are you trying to answer? Are you trying to answer just best player who happened to be at a certain place? Or are you talking about what they actually did at that place? Yeah, and that's a good point. I think most of the time, at least when I do it, I like to factor in what happened to them as a pro because you have to have separating factors. You have to have something like, okay, hey, they were pretty even in college. Well, this guy went on and had a, great pro career, you kind of need to factor that in too. But if you were to say, no, let's just judge it by what they accomplished at USC. Well, do you give high marks for winning a national championship, which USC was doing regularly in baseball, 60s, 70s, including five in a row? Did they take a team to the NCAA tournament if it's basketball? It kind of depends on what's most important to you. I take the holistic approach in these arguments. So You know, if you want to bring in Westfall and Gus Williams because of what they accomplished as pros and also great three-year careers at USC, that's probably for me what I go with is the combination of college and pro. Yeah. I mean, I would say personally the best USC men's basketball player of all time is Paul Westfall. That's who I would go with. I don't think DeMar did enough at USC and he has been a good pro and He still has more to go in his career. But yeah, Paul Westfall would be the best USC men's basketball player of all time. What about Harold Miner? Harold Miner, I mean, if you're just going based on his years in college, you have an argument. But obviously, he didn't do as much as a pro as Westfall did. So I think, again, like if we're going to take the whole breadth of a player's career, 
I would go Westfall over Minor. Yeah, agreed. Now, Minor was maybe the most exciting Trojan basketball player of all time, though. And there have been exciting basketball players throughout USC's history. But you could argue that Baby Jordan put USC on the map in a way that it hadn't been before he got there. Yeah, you're right about that. The impact on the program was very significant, and it helped George Raveling build something that uh, had a string of pretty special years. And of course, the NBA slam dunk champion. Yeah, there were some pretty cool things. But I go with, I think, Westfall. And then even if you add in with Westfall, you add in, you know, having been a head coach, both at the professional and college level. And that was a Hall of Fame basketball career for sure. And it took too long for him to get in the Hall of Fame. I think everyone should be able to agree on that. He should have been in the Basketball Hall of Fame a lot sooner than he got in. Yeah. And you know, something too, I'll tell you, as somebody that loves high school sports and not that I get out to, you know, as a kid, you're not able to drive to things. And I didn't, growing up in Long Beach, he wasn't too far away in Redondo, but that seemed like a long way away before I could drive. And I didn't get a chance to see him in person in high school. I did see a couple of high school games on TV back in the day that KNBC had a high school game of the week and Ross Porter was the announcer. I've kidded with Ross about that, but I remember when Paul Westfall was featured Aviation High Redondo Beach one day. And I tell you what, his skill level, especially at that time, was just off the charts. He was the first player who I saw as like completely ambidextrous. He was almost the equivalent of the pitcher that can throw with either hand, like that crazy ambidextrous. He used his left hand as easily as he, as he used his right. And I'm sure in stories about his career and development as a youth, there must be something in there about why he could dribble so well with his left hand, even though he was a natural right-hander. But you talk about having star written all over him at a very, very young age. It was kind of no surprise that he had the career he had. And of course, the bad news about Paul Westfall as well, dealing with brain cancer. And so we know that that's going to be something that's tough to deal with for an all-time great Trojan. Before we go, I want to get your thoughts on the late Mike Gillespie. He is the coach of the last USC team to win a College World Series. That happened in my senior year of 1998, so it's been a long time for the USC baseball program. He, of course, went on to lead UC Irvine to the College World Series as well, but he was a guy who played for the great Rod Dato, ended up becoming the coach at USC for many years, and Ended up leaving, not necessarily because he wanted to, but at that time, he was kind of pushed out in a way by athletic director Mike Garrett, and so it didn't end the way he wanted it to, and again, USC has not had the same success since. Talk about his legacy a little bit. Yeah, his legacy is extraordinary. I think when you talk about Coach Gillespie, the thing that you hear, when you bring up his name to anybody associated with USC baseball that knew him at all. I had the good fortune to meet him at one of the USC baseball banquets, which we've held over the last few years. I'm part of the baseball alumni group, not as somebody that played, but I guess you'd say as a friend of the organization. They've asked me to emcee the event the last few years. It's been my honor and privilege. And Coach Gillespie got an award a couple of years ago and had a chance to introduce him and talk to him briefly. And it just, it confirmed everything everybody had said about him. First class in every way. I mean, extraordinary person, human being. It was super sad what happened, how things ended at USC, because it shouldn't have happened that way. The game had not passed him by. There was none of that. And it was messy. It was unfortunate. He had a great 20-year run. He embodied everything you'd want to have in a coach, in a head coach. And the fact that he'd been a USC player, helped win a national championship, won one as a player and as the head coach is incredibly special. John Savage is a good friend of mine, the UCLA head coach who was the pitching coach at USC when, as you mentioned, when you were a student and USC won the national title in 98, Coach Savage handled the pitching staff. And he has told me on many occasions that the best coach in the country, I mean, I'm talking about when he was still coaching at UCI, the best coach in the country was Mike Gillespie. And he felt that and was sincere about it. I've talked to him since coach's passing and He was so sad because Coach Gillespie didn't really get a chance to enjoy retirement. His wife had some physical challenges that took its toll on Coach Gillespie. And so he didn't have many years to enjoy just a couple after he retired. But you can't say that the impact he had on the game and the young men that he coached, the current coach at UC Irvine, Ben Orloff, is a former 
player under him at UCI, came out of Simi Valley High School, and he will, he'll talk till he gets tears telling you about the impact that Coach had on his career. And I know so many associated with USC that I've talked to feel that way about just knowing him. And he was a great teacher of the sport, and all the great coaches are teachers first, and they will say that, and they'll be proud to say that. And Mike Gillespie was that first. He taught the game. He could communicate so well with his players and his coaches. He built kids up. He was positive. And he just, you know, he did things first class. He did things the right way. He elevated the game, and he elevated his sport. And I think those that played for him and that coached for him and with him all will say, as I think Coach Savage did, that it was an honor and that he was as good as it got. And I guess most important is we could say that we were glad that that he touched the USC program for those 20 years. What a great career and what a great man. Well said. And of course, two great losses for the USC baseball program, the USC athletic program in general. Tom Seaver and Mike Gillespie with both passing away. And of course, we send our condolences and well wishes to the Seaver and Gillespie families. Indeed. Yes, absolutely. Both of those men made such an incredible impact on USC baseball and on the university. And they're going to be a source of pride for all of us that have a connection to USC. And they may be gone, but they will never be forgotten. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, you can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. You can also go to the website, Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. My guest today, Jeff Fellenzer, Associate Professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Why don't you let the people know what you're up to and where they can find you? Absolutely, Nara. So Twitter is at J Fellenzer, F-E-L-L-E-N-Z-E-R. Instagram, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. I connect with a lot of people on LinkedIn. My podcast is called The Front Row because I love for my students to sit as close to the front of the class as possible. We look at the journeys in life of notable sports personalities, interesting, compelling journeys, kind of keys to success. And I would love to have anybody join me for my podcast. Listen in. Let me know what you think. And hopefully see you on the podcast network sometime in the near future. All right, Jeff. So before I wrap this up, show up. I can't let you go without asking you, as a Heisman Trophy Award voter, who are your top candidates going into this 2020 season? <laughs> Once again, Nara, we start with the great uncertainty of the season itself, but you know, you don't necessarily have one overwhelmingly likely candidate, but I would say you probably have at least a couple that the odds makers seem to favor. And, you know, those would be the well-known names of Justin Fields, who I had third on my ballot last year. My one, two, three was actually the same as the final national results with Joe Burrow followed by Jalen Hurts and then Justin Fields, who had a great year, first year after transferring from Georgia at Ohio State. And, you know, you could certainly argue that Trevor Lawrence has been as good a player over the last two years combined that we've seen in college football. Joe Burrow was a runaway winner last year for good reason. But a year ago at this time, as the season was beginning, he really wasn't on anybody's list. That's the beauty of this award and of college football is it's not very predictable. So I, I would say those two quarterbacks are certainly a quarterback's award. We haven't had a running back win it since 2015 with Derrick Henry, the year that I thought Christian McCaffrey should have won in a landslide. And, you know, there certainly are a couple running backs that you have to think long and hard about as the season starts. Again, assuming that we have enough of a season that we indeed have a Heisman Trophy. But Travis Etienne of Clemson, who could end up taking some votes from his teammate Trevor Lawrence or vice versa. But, you know, this is a two-time defending ACC Player of the Year. And, I mean, he's had a fabulous run here at Clemson, and he should be right there. As should Chuba Hubbard who was a 2,000-yard rusher for Oklahoma State, a redshirt junior, 
Canadian kid. So those are running backs, you know, that pop to mind. Jalen Waddell, the receiver at Alabama, will be another one that you'll keep an eye on, especially if he stands out as a returner in addition to being a great receiver at Alabama. I think Sam Ellinger as well, guy who surpassed 4,000 yards in total offense, really a dynamic player. Of course, USC fans remember him at the Coliseum a few years ago and that battle with Sam Darnold. Feels like he's been around a long time. And you know what? I'll tell you something. Keaton Slovis, I mean, you're talking about a guy that completed as a freshman over 70% of his passage, which is just crazy. You know, I think he certainly starts the year as the West Coast number one candidate. I think, you know, the Alabama game according to the original schedule, would have been a great place for him to have launched his candidacy. But, you know, he has the kind of profile. He established himself last year, so he goes in with at least a reputation, and he's in most preseason, I think, top 10 lists. But I got to tell you, and this might be kind of fun, now that Jamie Newman has opted out at Georgia after transferring it from Wake Forest, I mean, JT Daniels, he may get an opportunity to really throw the ball you know, all around the yard and the opportunities he's going to have to generate offense at Georgia. Yeah, I just think it might be kind of fun. I mean, wouldn't that be something if you had those two guys that were actually at some point legit candidates, guys that were on the same sideline a year ago? That would be really interesting. I mean, especially if JT Daniels does get the starting job and they got new offense going there in Georgia. You'd expect them to throw the ball a lot, and we'll see. But so right now, you're still going to include the guys from the Big Ten and the Pac-12? It's fun just to you know make it a larger pool, at least, to start with. Let's see what happens. It's all speculation, especially at this point. And I would say, based on who we know will be playing, at least starting the season, I mean, Trevor Lawrence probably belongs at the very top, but it would almost kind of feel like last year when he probably was thought of as the preseason favorite, that a year later, maybe he comes in with a little bit of something to prove that he's Heisman worthy, and he certainly has got great talent, the presumptive number one pick in the draft. But again, like I said, the fun part of it is, you know, there's somebody somewhere that could emerge. You know, how big is the field going to be this year? It's hard to know yet. But I'm hoping it'll end up being, you know, more leagues in the pack. We'll be playing. We'll keep it our fingers crossed anyway. Yep, we definitely are. Well, Jeff, it is always great talking sports with you. I always enjoy it. I'm glad you were able to come on and do a second episode with me. It was my pleasure, Nara. Had a lot of fun. I uh, appreciate the invitation, a chance to spend time with you and talk sports. Hope to do it again sometime. For sure. And so for my guests, USC Annenberg School Associate Professor Jeff Fellinzer. I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 11 of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles's number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as always, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.